Cannot hear. Well, first of all, you're deaf if you cannot hear that sound in the background. Um, that is construction noise. <laughs> that is construction noise, which is happening literally like 15 feet away from me. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing I could do to stop it. I was considering uh, postponing the show, but I decided, hey, maybe it won't be all that bad. And uh, now as I talk to you, you know, it's going to be super obnoxious, definitely for the people who are listening live on Blog Talk Radio. YouTube, it won't be as bad because we have the high-quality microphones that can kind of, like, you know, block out the background noise. So um, it'll be a tough one, probably more for me in terms of focusing than for you listening, although I'm sure you can hear that annoying-ass hammering right now. Um, But hopefully it'll, like, soften up as we go along here. And I'm uh, just going to have to be like a professional and deal with it and, and move forward as, as much as I possibly can. But apart from the super obnoxious background noise, we do have uh, quite the show for you today. I got some breaking news that uh, just came out about 20 minutes before I'm coming on air here. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I didn't want to postpone the show, because uh, I feel like you know we're going to be one of the first people to talk about this in the new media space, and that's, you know, pretty exciting. It actually reminds me of when the gay marriage ruling happened, and, you know, we we learned that we have legal gay marriage in this country. We have another similar giant victory today for LGBTQ rights. God, that is so annoying. All right, so we... (laughs) Uh, let me give you a little rundown here while we have hammering in the background that's going to annoy the shit out of me. Um, President Trump 
is involved in a new scandal. It's called Rampgate. And um, he went on Twitter and embarrassed himself repeatedly while pretending like uh, he was in tip-top shape and running down the stairs. So I think there's a little bit of silliness happening on President Trump's side, but also on the side of the people who uh, think he had a stroke or something. We're going to talk about that. That'll be the second story that we jump into. We have uh, Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow went on CNN and uh, defended the administration hiding where our bailout money is going. I have a lot to say about that. They're robbing us in plain sight. We have uh, CNBC's Jim Cramer basically admitted that all throughout Wall Street, they're doing nothing but lying to us, but also committing fraud out in the open, and there are zero consequences for what they're doing. So it's quite interesting to see a flat-out admission from a CNBC host about this. Um, so that's a fascinating segment. And to my surprise, nobody else is talking about that. I don't think anybody else or very few people have actually seen that segment. But I think it's quite telling. I think it's one of the stories of the week, to be honest. Then we'll talk about the autonomous zone in Seattle, Washington. You have these anarchists who kind of declared independence from the United States in like a six-block radius. So uh, we'll be talking about that. God damn it, that's so annoying. Holy fuck. Wow. I think as I'm doing the show now, I'm thinking this was a mistake to do the show with that noise in the background. (laughs) Of course, the construction has to be two feet away from me. It can't be like, you know, whatever, a block away. Um, Then we have general, a general coming out and apologizing for partaking in Trump's gassing of peaceful protesters. I think that that might actually signify um, a turning point in the Trump administration in many ways. So uh, we'll talk about that and um, a bunch more stuff. I do have a lot of stories for you today. Unfortunately, they will be obnoxiously bombarded with hammering in the background. Anyway, all right, let's get started with the breaking news. So in the same week, I have um, incredible good news for the LGBT community, LGBTQ. I don't even know all the, um, you know, I don't even know the full outline anymore. LGBTQIA, is it? Plus? (laughs) So forgive me for being, you know, stuck in like 2010 in terms of my terminology here. But um, there's good news and there's bad news on this front. First, I want to give you the bad news. Then we'll get to the amazing news, which actually just came out about 20 minutes ago. But the bad news is as follows. The Trump administration rolls back health care protections for transgender people. They say sex is to be determined by biology. So let me give you a quote um, from what Health and Human Services says. Under the final rule, Health and Human Services eliminates certain provisions of the 2016 rule that exceeded the scope of the authority delegated by Congress in Section 1557 of Obamacare. HHS will enforce Section 1557 by referring to the government's interpretation of sex discrimination according to the plain meaning of the word sex as male or female and as determined by biology. The 2016 rule declined to recognize sexual orientation as a protected category under the ACA, and HHS will leave that judgment undisturbed. So, basically what that means is the Trump administration is saying If you want to discriminate against transgender people um, and you're a healthcare company, that's perfectly legal, 
because protections when it comes to sex are solely for gender, are solely for male, female. That doesn't translate into um, sexual orientation. And, you know, this is what they call textualism, which is like the plain face reading of what it says, interpreted in a literal way. And really, it's, you know, barely coded bigotry from the right to try to limit the scope of non-discrimination protections and to basically leave out transgender people. So the Trump administration just did this this week or last week. Um, and it's a giant middle finger to the transgender community. But right before I came on air, we got this amazing news. I'm very happy to share this with everybody. This is a uh, a historic day in many respects. The Supreme Court delivered a historic victory for LGBTQ workers, ruling that the federal law that bars sex discrimination in employment does apply to LGBTQ uh, employees. So there was a case. There's this woman by the name uh, Amy Stevens. She was fired from her job because she came out as transgender. So she came out and said, I'm trans, and then apparently her boss or bosses said, okay, we're uncomfortable with that. So they literally fired her over the fact that she's trans because they were uncomfortable with it. And so she sued as a result of it. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And we just learned that now it is illegal and it is unconstitutional to fire somebody on the basis of their um, sexual orientation and their gender identity. Um, The argument that the federal government was making is no, 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 those protections only mean for, you know, male, female. So in other words, you can't fire on the basis of gender, but it means biological gender. And the response from Amy Stevens and from her legal team was, no, 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 also gender identity. Also, transgender people also have those same protections under the law. And of course, they're referring to the 1964 um, Civil Rights Act and the, the non-discrimination protections that are in that law. And the argument is a plain face reading of that law says basically you cannot discriminate against somebody because of arbitrary characteristics that they can't control. And so when it says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, they say, no, no, that also means, you know, gender identity. And so that also would protect transgender people. So the decision is 6-3. Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, which is absolutely surprising He was joined by Roberts, another conservative one, and then, of course, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan also sided with the majority here. So the only three dissenters, it was Alito, um, Clarence Thomas, and Brett Kavanaugh. So, you know, listen, you got to say massive credit to Neil Gorsuch and massive credit to John Roberts, because, you know, if you were guessing going into it, I certainly would have said, at least one of those two, probably both of them, were going to be on the other side of it. So really, it was the fact that you had some crossover um, you know, votes from conservative justices here that we ended up upholding LGBTQ rights. So really, this is a historic day. Just so everybody understands, I believe it's about 20 states, maybe 23 states thereabouts, that do not protect transgender people And it is totally legal to fire somebody because they're transgender. That's in over 20 states that that was the case. Well, now, as a result of the Supreme Court decision, it is illegal in every single state in the United States of America 
to fire somebody solely because they're transgender. So listen, this is a wonderful day for justice, a wonderful day for liberty and freedom, and it's something to be celebrated. This reminds me a lot of the day that the Supreme Court basically ruled that gay marriage is legal. Um, that's how big of a deal this is, and it's very rare that we get good news in 2020, so I'll definitely take it. However, I will say you've got to keep your eye on the Supreme Court because here's what happens with the Supreme Court as a general rule. They'll give all the ground you want on social issues, but they will never give an inch. They'll never give a millimeter when it comes to corporate issues, and they'll always side with big money interests on that front. But at least on this front, man, this is a total victory. I'll definitely take it. It's a huge W, and really it's a day to be celebrated. And um, again, all I have to say is massive credit to Gorsuch and Roberts, who it really was unexpected that they flipped to the proper side of this, but they did. And apparently they're not okay with firing somebody because of arbitrary characteristics that they can't control. Uh, so this actually was a big hit to Donald Trump, who really tried to pick far right-wing justices because he was trying to deliver for his evangelical fundamentalist base uh, and, you know, basically screw over LGBTQ people in order to shore up his own base. Well, it turns out that the justices he picked, or at least, you know, Gorsuch, but not Kavanaugh, but he picked Gorsuch, and Gorsuch was on the left-wing side of this issue. So, again, couldn't be happier at the result of this. And I'm not sure it might be the case that this kind of makes null and void what Trump just did with getting rid of the non-discrimination protections in healthcare, This might overturn that as well. So either way, we'll take it. It's a huge W, and that, again, is super rare in the year 2020. Next. Now, again, I'm going to warn everybody, in between every single segment, um, we have quite a bit of quite a bit of construction going on in the background here. So if you hear it, I apologize. I do believe that the sound will be a little bit better on YouTube because the, we have the noise-canceling high-quality microphones, which are really important. So anyway, let's get into Rantgate. I have a new scandal to talk about with everybody. It's called Rampgate. So President Trump gave a commencement address at West Point, and there are two moments at that address which are leading to speculation about his health so there's the awkward sip of water, which you're about to see, and also his very ginger walk down a ramp. Take a look. Watch that back one more time so you can see 
what they're saying in terms of the water and then what they're saying in terms of walking down the ramp. The water, he uses both hands. The ramp, he kind of does like a little shuffle step down it. Let's take a look. That's him sipping the water. Needs both hands, they're saying. Yep. And then here's the walk down the ramp. It looks like the guy next to him might be there to, like, help him. Although he's not help, he's not really holding him, the guy next to him. See, he has a little the little shuffle step. He's not doing like one foot in front of the other. He's doing a little shuffle step down the stairs. Now, again, before I respond here, just uh, I apologize for the construction noise in the background. There's construction happening like 20 feet away from me, and it's incredibly loud, annoying, and obnoxious, and it's diverting my attention. Hopefully, you don't hear it that much, but I certainly do. But anyway, so um, Trump definitely does some kind of upper, okay? We've talked about this before. If you go look at the CPAC speech that he did, I believe it was last year, and then you also look, compare that to the UN speech that he gave, I believe it was last year. The CPAC speech, you see him flying high. He's definitely high on something. He's bouncing off the walls. He's really dynamic and gregarious and outgoing, and he's all over the place, and he's making jokes and all this stuff. The UN speech is definitely him coming down from an upper because he's talking very slow and it seems like he's coming down and he's crashing and he can't control his mood and he's barely staying awake and he slurred his speech. So I've definitely seen evidence, in my opinion, of some sort of upper use. I would guess Adderall. Some people say Sudafed. There's a certain brand of Sudafed that's very much acts like an upper. Um, so I'm not saying the dude doesn't have health problems. He was also rushed to the uh, Walter Reed Medical Center. I believe it was, you know, maybe six months ago or a year ago or something like that. And we covered it on this show because it was seemingly very random and people were speculating he had some sort of a health issue, you know, some sort of an emergency. I think that's very possible as well. Now, having said all of that, there's the hammering if you can't hear it. For this one, I'm not buying it, what I just saw right there. Okay, the way that he sips water, he sips water like that all the time. <laughs> he always does the one-hander, and then he gets the other hand underneath it and, like, gingerly sips it. It's been, like, an ongoing joke for a while that he kind of sips, you know, a drink like a little boy, which is actually kind of hilarious. Seen that before. I don't think that that's evidence of some sort of, you know, medical crisis or emergency or whatever. And then the walking down the steps thing, listen, the dude is like 73 years old and he's overweight. So when he's doing like the little shuffle step, I don't, that, I don't think that's indicative of anything except being 73 years old and being kind of overweight. Now, I think the one argument that people have is that the dude next to him looked like he was almost there to assist him and help him if he had trouble getting down the stairs, which is a little bit of a red flag. But if you look closely, that dude's not actually holding the president. He's not touching the president. He's just kind of walking next to the president. And the angle might make it look like they're closer than they are, if that makes sense. So the little shuffle step down the stairs, I'm not surprised. He's 73 years old. He's fat as hell. Um, and the sipping of the water is just how he always sips water. So I don't know why this, of all things, was blowing up. Meanwhile, when I, gave, when I did my segment on the CPAC speech, nobody was talking about how it seemed like he was high as a kite. 
And very few people were talking about how during the UN speech that it looked like he was crashing from a drug. So it's weird the things that people latch onto, and people are analyzing this video like it's the Zapruder film. <laughs> and I just, I don't understand that. So the final thing I'll show you is this. Trump said this. The ramp that I descended after my West Point commencement speech was very long and steep, had no handrail, and most importantly, was very slippery. The last thing I was going to do is fall, I like how I put that in quotes, for the fake news to have fun with. Final 10 feet, I ran down to level ground. Momentum! <laughs> so he wasn't running. He, was, he moved like super slowly, but moved his arms as if he was running down the ramp. But it's so, the fact that he felt the need to come out there and respond, because he saw that on Twitter it was trending, that people were speculating he had a stroke or something, almost flips in the other direction in my mind. So I didn't think much of the walking down the stairs or the water sip, but after him responding like this, all of a sudden I'm like, damn, maybe he is hiding something. Because Trump is the king of, like, you know, overreacting to hide something. You know what I mean? So the fact that he felt the need to respond on Twitter about nothing's wrong, nothing's even wrong enough. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Everything's wonderful. It's tremendous. The fact that he did that makes me think, like, oh, okay, maybe he is hiding something. So in a weird way, I almost flip as a result of that. But ultimately, I'll stick with my final ruling of, of all the things he's said and done and how he's acted over the years, this one does not even crack the top ten of, like, awkward behavior. The walk was ginger, but he's old and fat, so you expect that. And then, the, you know, the water sip, I've seen him do that a million times. So I do think that people on Twitter are going a little overboard because it appeared to be, like, some sort of a consensus that he has, what's the term, Louis body dementia or something, or... Um, or he had a stroke, when in reality, listen, if we're going to keep it real about what's happening right now, yes, Trump is a total moron, and again, he probably does uppers and whatnot, but cognitively, I think he's significantly more there than Joe Biden. So, you know, if you want to open that door to speaking about the health of these candidates, it, I don't think that conversation is going to end well. So, you know, Twitter was having a field day with this, but I got to be honest, I don't see it as much as I saw it with the other ones. I just think he's an old, you know, fat, frail man walking downstairs, and I think he always sips water like that. So I hate to rain on everybody's parade, but on this front, I'm not really buying it. Okay. All right, now we're going to go to uh, the Wall Street one. Oh, wait, did I pick the wrong segment? Oh, Larry Kudlow, my bad. Let's go to Larry Kudlow. President Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, went on CNN and he defended the administration hiding where our bailout money is going. Watch this. Loans to, to companies to keep people um, employed. Um, Secretary Mnuchin originally promised full transparency about who was receiving these loans during the crisis. But this past week, he reversed course, and he said the government would not release the names of those companies. Now, look, I can understand why the Trump administration might think that a company that receives a $25,000 loan doesn't need that information released. I, I, I get that. But some companies are getting millions, if not tens of millions of dollars don't the American people have a right to know where their money is going? Well, look, I, I think in terms of those that shouldn't have qualified, a lot of them have returned the money. 
and some of those have been named. But I think when Secretary Mnuchin talked about transparency, he talked about the transparency of the process of making the evaluation for the loan and then the distribution of the loan. By the way, for what it's worth, the Congressional Budget Office just put out a report complimenting the Treasury and the administration for getting all these forms of assistance out in a very rapid time. There's been nothing like it. It's the biggest rescue in American history and the uh, efficacious distribution, the whole system, which is transparent, there is an IG that's going to watch over that. And that's what the Secretary is talking about. You know, we, we, we will be reporting to the public. No, 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 sir, I'm sorry. He said we would report to the public. That's what he said. We will be reporting to the public. That's us, the American people, and we have a right to know where these tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars have gone. If there's no problem with it, if everything's fine with it, great. But I mean, otherwise, it is about as swampy a deal as I can ever imagine, the government giving out hundreds of millions of dollars, and the American people don't even get to know who got it. Well, I don't know that I would judge it that way. I don't think it was sloppy. Again, I swampy, repeat, swampy. the Congressional Budget Office, which is nonpartisan, said this is the most efficient distribution of emergency rescue funds ever. All right? That's the CBO. That's nonpartisan, Jake. Now, insofar as naming each and every company, I don't think that promise was ever made, and I don't think it's necessary. I think what is necessary is to make sure that the legalities were observed, that the process of credit and lending was observed, and that people who could qualify will, in fact, get it. There are appeals. We've sent out about $510 billion, and it has, judging by the jobs numbers, which surprised everybody on the upside, 3 million new jobs in May, it has worked. It's probably one of the most successful rescue packages in American history. So I'm afraid yeah. I pushed back he, he on said, that just he said a we will have, He said we will have full transparency in everything we do, and now – the administration is backtracking on that, and uh, I understand again. But well, maybe, so, maybe some of the company twenty-five thousand dollar loan. You don't need to get that. You don't need to explain. You know That's why that correct. local business got That's that. That's but, but, the, but the big. That's exactly right. But the big loans, the big companies, it's more it. than five hundred thousand dollars. I think the American people have a right to know. Well, I, I don't know that. Look uh, again. There's a certain privacy element here. That's the way business operates. There's a certain privacy element here. That's how business operates. No, 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 no. This is coming from one of those guys who's a, who claims to be like a free market, laissez-faire, capitalist, fundamentalist. So in other words, hey, listen, you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you fail in the marketplace, that's on you. The government should not rush in and help you. I believe in small government. This is who Larry Kudlow is. Now, the second that we have an economic crash totally flips on that, and what does he do? He comes out as a corporate socialist. So not only does he want U.S. taxpayers to bail out giant multinational corporations, when you say, hey, I want to see where my bailout money, where my tax money went, he goes, no, I, there's, an, there's an issue of privacy, and we got to you know, make it so that they, they have a right to hide the information that they're robbing you and taking your money, and by the way, probably using it to pad the bottom line and and have more profits as they lay people off, which is what we saw with Boeing, for example, what we saw with many in the airline industry. They get The government rushes in and bails them out, and then they fire people anyway. Well, hold on. The whole point of the bailout money was let's keep things going, business as usual. So 
when the taxpayer bails you out and then you fire people anyway, where the hell is that money going to? That seems like an important question, doesn't it? So listen, this shows you, it rips the mask off of the fraud that is the, the, the trickle-down economics people, the Reaganomics people. They, they've always been frauds. They don't have a principled stance in favor of small government and for free market capitalism. They're the biggest socialists of them all, but again, it's socialism for the rich, it's socialism for the wealthy, it's socialism for the corporations and the top 1%. So Steve Mnuchin is the Treasury Secretary. He's a, a former Goldman Sachs lackey. Goldman Sachs, by the way, full of criminals. They committed fraud as a business model over there. This guy, now the Treasury Secretary, he gets to determine who gets the bailout money, and then now they're not even going to tell us where that money's going to. As Jake Tapper rightly points out, this is as swampy as it gets. But by the way, nobody's off the hook here. I'm not letting CNN off the hook because they didn't hold anybody's feet to the fire. When this was being passed, when it was happening right in front of our eyes, and people like me saw that this was going to be a mess and this was going to be swampy as hell, I saw it. How come CNN didn't see it at the time? How come the Democrats voted for it? Even Bernie Sanders voted for it. This really, effectively, was a reverse Robin Hood move. Rob the taxpayers and give to the wealthy. And by the way, there's a double whammy happening right now. So you have the Federal Reserve, the central bank. They said, listen, we'll pump a trillion dollars of liquidity per day into the marketplace to keep the thing afloat. So they're really bailing out investors, bailing out the wealthy. That's what the Fed is doing. Now, on top of the Fed doing it, Congress rushed in and bailed them out with tax money as well. So you have the double whammy. It's like double corporate socialism for investors, for corporations, and for the rich. And then meanwhile, everybody else is struggling, and they say, we don't even want to give you another tiny stimulus of $1,200, you know, a one-time $1,200 payment. So this is as disgusting as it gets. It's as gross as it gets. Don't ever let them tell you, oh, my God, we can't afford Medicare for all. We can't afford free college. We can't afford universal basic income. They didn't bat an eyelash. They immediately, you know, got their rear in gear when it came to giving more money to corporations. So as of right now, we have a complete decoupling of how the stock market is doing and how corporations are doing from how your average American is doing. So they can brag about the market all they want. See, that's what he's saying. He's saying, oh, my God, it worked. It worked in what sense? It worked in the sense that the market is now totally socialized. It, you, the government will not let the market fail. The Fed will not let these corporations fail. And now there's a total decoupling from how the stock market is doing and how your average person is doing. But see, they don't care about your average person, which is why they don't talk about your average person, and they don't bring up the fact that regular people are getting crushed. Up to 40% of small businesses could go bankrupt within a year, within a year. Because, again, it's crumbs for you. It's an endless bailout for the wealthy. And now they're saying, we bailed out the wealthy, we bailed out the corporations, and if you want to know where your money went, you could piss right off. We're not interested in telling you that. So just so you understand... We live in a corporate socialist system. It is officially an oligarchy and a kleptocracy, and it's government of, by, and for the wealthy. That's who they're really representing, which is why they got bailed out immediately. If you think about it, they immediately got bailed out because that's who the government is really representing because the campaign contributions come from who? The corporations and the wealthy. So Larry Kudlow is proving how swampy he is and how swampy the Trump administration is. And he doesn't even have a good line of BS to try to deflect. He says, oh, there's privacy issues? Privacy? You want some privacy? Don't take tax money. Don't steal from people who are already struggling. Then maybe you get some privacy. But as of 
right now, when you take the money, you take the bailout money, you rob the taxpayers, then you're going to turn around and say, I don't want to tell you where it went. Are you kidding me? No privacy issues. What a joke. The system bends over backwards to cater to the 1%, the wealthy and corporations, and that's clear. All right, now we're going to go to Jim Cramer. This is actually a very similar story here. Um, CNBC's Jim Cramer did a segment a few days ago with quite the admission in it, and what's stunning is how little attention it's gotten since he said this. Watch. Me for doing what I just did, but, you know, people have hated me for a lot of things, so just add that. Yeah, I mean, look, there are a couple of services out there, and I'm not going to particularly name anyone as a good, some very nice people, uh, that have been very good at running stocks. Now, running stocks is something that, of course, is illegal. Uh, that there used to be, the SEC used to look into these things and say, okay, well, is someone doing a pump and dump scheme? What is someone doing here? I don't find that to be a, the SEC as, as active as they used to be, or things like that, but. You do have people running stocks, and you know it's kind of like uh, confessions of a you know of a street. Well, when I talk about confessions of a, of a street in my first book, I talk about this. What I see these people doing these things, which is that they pick a stock and they run it for the day, and how horrible it is that they do that because you never know when they're going to be done, and, and they catch people. Uh, I was talking about last night. They bag people. They gun the stock, and then they liquidate the stock into the people that they've gunned it to. And I, it's a process that is even made worse by Twitter. I mean, Twitter's got guys bagging, gunning, and BGL, bagging, gunning, and liquidating everywhere. And, and so you've got to be really careful. I mean, there's a lot of people playing games right now. The most I've ever seen, I'm sure Dave would say too, I've never seen so many games played with stocks, which is that, hey, we're taking this one up today. We're taking that one up today. So just so everybody understands, what he's saying is it's the worst I've ever seen it on Wall Street right this second in terms of criminality. And that should be stunning to people because the 1980s was rife with criminal actions day in and day out on Wall Street. And then, of course, you go back to the 1920s, the roaring 20s, same thing, which led to the subprime mortgage, or excuse me, it led to the Great Depression, the stock market crash in the Great Depression. But also in the 2000s, the late 90s and 2000s, we had you know, the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, and we effectively had no rules, no cops, no regulators, Wall Street acting again, rampant criminality. And he's saying that right now it is the worst I've ever seen it. We have historical examples of like, terrible consequences and market crashes and depressions as a result of this kind of criminality. And Jim Cramer saying, as of right now, it's the worst I've ever seen it on Wall Street. Stop and think about that, man. He says they're running stocks. That's an illegal scam. He says they're doing pump and dump schemes, illegal. And he says the SEC used to investigate this stuff, and they're not doing it now. They're not doing it. So this links up in an incredible way with the modern moment because you see a lot of protests now. People are out there saying defund the police, defund the police. Well, they've already been defunded on Wall Street. There are no police. There are no regulators doing their jobs on Wall Street. So the the guys – with the suits and ties, they're not the smartest guys in the room. They're the greediest guys in the room. And now they get to act out every single criminal fantasy that they have. And see, this is, the, this is a story that doesn't get nearly enough attention. You had Matt Taibbi do a great job reporting on it, you know, in the 2000s. 
You got Lee Fong, who does great work now when it comes to um, corruption, for example, in politics and, and stuff like this. But there's very few people really reporting on this and talking about this, when really this is such a bigger story than petty crime. You know, somebody robs a convenience store, and that's huge news when it comes to local reporters. But you have just giant crimes, the likes of which we can't even wrap our minds around. Crime is a business model. But since they're white dudes wearing suits and ties, nobody talks about it, nobody cares. So I'll just give you one more example of this to, to prove the point. But Goldman Sachs, they had fraud as a business model, quite literally. What they would do is they would take these subprime mortgage packages, okay? They'd bundle all of them together, and then they'd sell the packages to unsuspecting clients, and they would tell the clients, hey, just so you understand, you're going to make a lot of money off this. This is a great investment. So Goldman Sachs would sell this product as if it's great. And by the way, it was rated AAA, which means it's a very safe investment. Guess what? They bought the ratings agency. So they were lying when they said it was AAA. And then what Goldman Sachs would do is they would turn around and bet on those same packages to fail. So they make money by selling it as if it's good to a client and lying about it. And then they turn around and bet on that same product to fail. So they made money both ways. That's the kind of rampant criminality that happens on Wall Street. And again, what Jim Cramer is saying now, and he's immersed in this world, he's saying they're running stocks. That's an illegal scam. They're doing pump and dump schemes. The SEC used to investigate it. Now they don't investigate it. And it's the worst I've ever seen it on Wall Street. So really, we do have a situation where we've defunded the police. We've defunded the cops on Wall Street. And so we have just massive, rampant criminality running through the system. And when you're talking about crimes to the tune of tens of billions or trillions of dollars, that manifests elsewhere in the economy. You're going to end up screwing people. You're going to end up taking away their livelihoods, for example, with bad investments and basically effectively, you know, just robbing from people. So look out, man, because, again, if people think that this is over, that this downturn that we've experienced as a result of COVID is over, oh, my God, you got another thing coming. Listen, as of right now, we've totally decoupled the marketplace and how corporations and the wealthy are doing from how your average American is doing. The Fed with a trillion dollars a day in liquidity to pump up the market, the bailout from Congress, which goes right to these giant corporations. There's been a complete decoupling of how they're doing. But at the same time, it might even be the case that even though we fully socialized the market and fully socialized investors and the wealthy and the corporations, even with all that help, you can have the market go down again. Because really, it's nothing but a giant casino. The market is nothing but a giant casino. And these Wall Street gamblers are all addicted. And guess what? They're going to they're gonna crash the entire system. It's going to happen again. And nobody's talking about it, even though there are admissions now up front. Like, yeah, this is what's happening. Well, at some point, the chickens are going to come home to roost. So buckle up for that. Okay. All right, we're going to go to the Fox News story. They're back up to their old tricks again. Um, wait until you see how they're lying about this so-called autonomous zone. So Fox News is up to their old tricks again. Before I continue, let me just warn everybody yet again, you might hear some construction noise in the background. There's nothing I can do about it. It's kind of loud and, and disturbing me. I don't know how well you guys could hear it. Hopefully you don't hear it at all, but I bet some of you do. Anyway, um, so Fox News is up to their old tricks. 
and there's this new autonomous zone that's been declared in Seattle. It's about like six blocks along. And listen, it's just, it's a bunch of anarchists. And, you know, they're effectively, in my estimation, blowing off steam and taking advantage of the current moment where with all the, the protests and all the chaos happening around the country and, you know, the whole movement to defund the police and whatnot, you have people who are saying, let's take advantage of this and basically declare independence from the United States in its little, like, six or seven block zone. Now, am I a supporter of this? No, because I think it's just goofy and they're wasting their time and there's much more substantive things to focus on. And you could say, hey, you know, I'm a bad lefty for this and whatever. I don't care. You could think I'm a bad lefty or not a bad lefty. Ultimately, I think this is like a bunch of kids who are blowing off steam and they're doing something ridiculous here. And I don't think this is going to end well, okay? So that's not a thing that has, oh, I'm just going to declare independence and be serious about it and set up an autonomous zone. Like, you know, there's a lot better things to do. But anyway, I digress from that. This segment is not about my feelings on the autonomous zone. The autonomous zone exists now, okay? And so Fox News, of course, is they've gone into overdrive with, you know, their propaganda on this front, and they're trying to hype it up like it's this giant, massive threat, and really they're, they're lying in many ways about what's happening, and they're trying to make it seem really, really scary. So this is how the Republican propaganda works. Fox News is photoshopping an armed guard into pictures about the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. By the way, they're calling it CHAZ, C-H-A-Z, to make it look more dangerous than it is. So they have this guy with a gun, and they're like photoshopping him into every picture of the Autonomous Zone to try to make it look like crazy armed lefties. Look at this. They're anarchists. They're communists. They're Antifa terrorists. So in other words, this isn't like goofy young people blowing off steam and being ridiculous. No, this is a threat. This is a real threat to the United States of America. And this is, look at this, armed thug Antifa terrorists taking over territory. So um, the other thing that they've done is they've used pictures from Minneapolis of businesses burning. And they've used that on you know, stories about the autonomous zone to make it look like everything is burning down in the autonomous zone and there's no law and order and there's total chaos and it's so scary and we must take it back, yeah! Um, Now, of course, those were pictures from Minneapolis. They were not pictures from the autonomous zone, but they're doing every single thing that they possibly can to make it look like it's scarier than it is. Which gets to the main point here, which is there's two stereotypes of the left that's pushed by Fox News and many people on the right. Um, One stereotype is they're overly identity-obsessed soy boy losers who are looking for something bigger than themselves to care about, and they latch on to this silliness about, you know, identity, and um, really they're just ridiculous, weak people. That's one stereotype. And then the other stereotype is what they trot out whenever there's like riots or looting is, oh my God, no. The left are actually really scary Antifa terrorists. They're anarchists, they're communists, and they're really violent and they're a threat to the system and you need to treat them like Al-Qaeda. They're, they're violent terrorists. That's what they are. So those are the two stereotypes. Now you'll notice something. Those are contradictory. Which is it? Are they scary Antifa terrorists 
or are they really weak soy boy losers who are identity obsessed? Now, I'll submit to you that I've seen way more examples looking at what's happening around the country with these protests and riots and everything. I've seen way more examples of that first stereotype popping its head up every now and then, where, you know, you have people who really are overly identity obsessed and, you know, all they do is talk about the identity issues. They're really not versed in policy at all, whether it's economic policy or foreign policy or whatever it might be. And um, so that stereotype is much more closer to correct. But if Fox News is trying to scare their 70-plus-year-old audience, that stereotype is inconvenient in this moment because then it's like, oh, it's a bunch of silly kids who don't know what the hell they're doing. But they're not going with that. Now they're going with, hey, they're armed and scary. Oh, my God, the Antifa terrorists are taking over. Get a gun and protect yourself. Yes! So notice how quickly they flip it when, when you know, the moment doesn't suit the previous narrative. And just understand that they're full of it. They're full of it. They're BSing. And um, the real goal is to scare you into accepting whatever the cops and the authorities decide to do. Now, funny enough, the old argument from the right-wingers was, listen, we need guns, we need arms to stop the government from becoming authoritarian. So that's the whole point, is we need, we care about freedom, we care about liberty, we care about justice, and we want to stop the jackbooted authoritarian government thugs from, from taking away our freedom. That was the old argument from the right. Well, now you got this stereotype that they're painting of what's happening in the autonomous zone, that's exactly the thing that they used to say that they liked. Hey, these people are tired of the government, you know, taking away their freedom, the jackbooted government thugs taking away their freedom and their liberty, so they're armed, and they declared independence. They set up an autonomous zone. That's exactly the kind of stuff that the right-wingers used to fetishize. And so now, sorry again for that background noise. I know it's, that's pretty loud. Um, and so now you see they flipped on that and they're trying to scare their audience simply because they disagree with the politics of the people setting up the autonomous zone. Um, so there's no consistency. It's whatever suits the narrative. On Monday, they're weak soy boy losers who are identity obsessed and ineffectual. And then on Tuesday, they're scary Antifa terrorists and they cannot get their stories straight. They will not get their stories straight. But thankfully, the final point I'll make here in this segment is that they ended up apologizing and taking down the pictures because they admitted like, okay, yeah, that was actually super misleading to have up this armed guy as if it's, you know, it's a terrorist haven or whatever. It's not a terrorist haven. It's a bunch of hippies who are like painting stuff in the streets. <laughs> and that's, that's what's going on in there. So um, they did at least uh, apologize and change the narrative now moving forward. But I have to say, man, damage is done because I know somebody in my family fell for it that this autonomous zone is like full of Antifa terrorists who are armed and ready to do violence. Somebody in my own family was like, you see it? They're armed. It's scary. So the propaganda effectively worked. All right, I'm going to do one more before we take a break. Hopefully some of this, um, this construction noise will lighten up. This next story is actually very surprising. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like this before. 
General Mark Milley, who sounds like a fake person and almost looks like a fake person. It really Trump is right when he says, general came in right out of central casting. He really does look like a general right out of central casting. Like, this is a general in a 1990s movie about, like, the end of the world. <laughs> that, that's what this guy is. But anyway, so this guy um, apologized for taking part in Trump's Bible photo op outside the White House. Watch this. Many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week. That sparked a national debate about the role of the military in civil society. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I have learned from, and I sincerely hope we all can learn from it. We who wear the cloth of our nation come from the people of our nation, and we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted. This is fascinating, and this is quite a moment. So listen, there are instances of Trump versus the establishment where, in my opinion, again, sorry for the construction noise in the background, in my opinion, I actually side with Trump over the establishment. Like, for example, on issues of trade, when Trump would threaten these trade deals and say, I'm going to pull out of it, you'd have the establishment melt down and say, oh, my God, you're destroying the world order. This is not okay. Do whatever the corporations want, please. So there were instances of Trump bucking establishment orthodoxy where, in my opinion, Trump was correct. Um, Foreign policy. There are many instances where he was like, we're going to get out of Afghanistan. And I was like, yes, do that. We're going to get out of Syria. I'm like, yes, do that. And the establishment was like, no, we can't do that. It would threaten the world order, and the world needs us to invade absolutely every country. Yeah! So I don't want to make this issue out like it's very cut and dry, and the establishment and conventional wisdom and the status quo always trumps Trump. No, there are instances where Trump is actually correct in his initial rhetoric on an issue. Now, ultimately, Trump ended up staying in the wars because the establishment overrode him. And really, when it comes to um, trade policy as well, Trump largely has continued the status quo with, you know, minor deviations here and there. So really, the establishment trumped Trump on virtually every front. On other issues, that was a giant problem, and I didn't agree with it. Here's an issue where the establishment is trumping Trump and... I'm thankful because what we're talking about is the Insurrection Act here. We're talking about invoking an old law to stop slave rebellions in order to deploy the U.S. military here at home. That's what Trump wanted to do. Now, watching what General Mark Milley said here, you get the sense that the generals and the military are looking at what Trump wants to do, and they're going... That's a bridge too far, man. I can't do it. I cannot deploy the U.S. military domestically because that's not our job. That's not what we're trained to do. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's the definition of martial law. We're not going to do that. I think that goes too far. I think that's unacceptable. Here you have Mark Milley, who I guess was seen standing around as they were tear-gassing peaceful protesters. And he's like, you know what? American exceptionalism cuts both ways, by the way where these guys, 
genuinely believe that like we're the you know we're the police force of the world we're the indispensable country and so we have to invade all these other places but also part of american exceptionalism is this notion that oh my god we can never turn our military on our own people because we're supposed to be so special and we're supposed to be you know a nation that's above and beyond the actions of petty authoritarians so we don't declare martial law here. We don't deploy our military in our own streets because we're supposed to be the special nation that's above that. We only, we only deploy it elsewhere. So now listen, I'm not a believer in American exceptionalism, but they happen to be correct in the sense that they think we, can't, we have to draw a line. We cannot deploy our own military in our own country like this. We cannot have that. So they're correct on that for the wrong reasons. It's not that, oh my God, we can't do that because we're so special. It's that, oh, my God, we shouldn't do that because the precedent that that sets is the death of the First Amendment. When you send in the U.S. military to shut down demonstrations, they will not be able to just target rioters and looters. If the U.S. military is deployed, they will just shut down demonstrations full stop. You know, to steal an old phrase from Obama, it's like using a hatchet when you need to use a scalpel. That's effectively what ordering the U.S. military into U.S. streets, that's what that would be like. And the precedent that that sets is there is no free speech at home anymore. Because if you can deploy it now, you can deploy it for any reason or non-reason you want. If the president has the authority to turn the military against the U.S. citizens, then the president will always have that authority. And the details around it could change. But once the president asserts that authority, well, now we open up a whole can of worms, and there is no more First Amendment. So, for example, you wouldn't be able to go out there in the streets and protest the next war or the current wars. We couldn't use our free speech to say, hey, let's stop killing innocent people overseas because they would shut down that avenue completely. And it looks like a guy like General Mark Milley, he actually understands that, no, 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 this is a bridge too far. This is unconstitutional. This is illegal. This is the actions of a petty authoritarian. It's unacceptable. And he feels bad for even standing there while peaceful protesters were gassed. And so... I think you would have, if Trump ever really did order the use of the Insurrection Act, I think you would have an unprecedented situation where you have a lot of conscientious, conscientious objectors within the top ranks of the U.S. military. Because watching what he's saying here, it's almost like he understands and he gets it that, no, 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 this goes way too far. This is not supposed to be even in the realm of conversation or reasonable, reasonable debate or discourse. This is just flat, pure, unadulterated authoritarianism. That's what this is. That's what this is. And it brings me nothing but joy to see that apparently our military leaders get it. So, again, I want to reiterate, there are instances of like Trump versus the establishment where I think Trump is right. I think Trump was right on Syria. I think Trump was right on Afghanistan and all the wars. His rhetoric when he said he wants to get out. And I do think that... The way the system works, it's almost like, yeah, Trump might even want to get out, but they're just not going to let him. Like, he ordered the withdrawal of troops on Twitter one day. And then the establishment was like, Haha, that's a good one. We're not getting out. And I was like, well, what? That's the commander-in-chief. What are you talking about? He, he can order them out if he wants it. But it's almost like the machine said, no, we're not going to let you do that. So there are instances of Trump versus the establishment where I side with Trump. But this is one of those instances where Trump was dead wrong, and he wanted to be an authoritarian, and the military, at least the leaders, are, are acting like, no, we're not, that crosses the line and we're not going to do that. So this is a rare instance where I think the establishment is correct and Trump is wrong. So um, 
I'm actually very happy that this general came out and said that. I'm very happy because um, it shows me that there are certain things that are red lines. And I view Trump invoking the Insurrection Act to shut down demonstrations. I view that as a clear red line that he crossed, which is basically like destroying the First Amendment of the Constitution utterly and completely. And what's reassuring about this is apparently generals agree, or at least one general agrees. And that means there's some semblance of things still do matter. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many bad things happen one after the other after the other that we only, you almost get to the point where you're like, does anything matter? Like, do any of the things that are on paper, our laws, our rules, the way it's supposed to work, does any of that matter? And you get the sense, no, it doesn't. But then every now and then you get a little something that, that pokes its head out, like this, where you go, oh, Oh, thank God. I'm not the crazy one. Things do still matter. Or like the ruling that just happened where the Supreme Court ruled that transgender people are protected with uh, non-discrimination clauses in the Civil Rights Act. I'm like, oh, thank God. Thank God. We finally got another little piece of good news. So um, this is a rare thing that I'm very happy about. And I hope that he stays true to his word. And I hope that Trump does not exercise that authoritarian streak that he has in him anymore. You know what? I lied. I'm going to do one more because I don't hear the construction outside. I think maybe they went to lunch. So let me squeeze in one more before I take my break. And we might get lucky and have no noise. This adds to the dynamic of the U.S. being the laughingstock of the world in many respects or the freak show of the world. I think there are probably people in other countries who look down on us in the sense that they think, oh, you poor, you poor fools, you poor fools. So this is in the Seattle Times. Coronavirus survival comes with a $1.1 million, 181-page price tag. $1.1 million for coronavirus treatment. Can't make this stuff up. So the gentleman's name is Michael Floor. He's 70 years old. He was in the hospital for 62 days. 62 days. Now, I'll give you the exact number in a second, but let me give you a little breakdown of the costs here. The ICU room that he was in, which is a special, you know, pandemic room that's kind of sealed and everything, $408,912. That's what just the room cost. The mechanical ventilator that he was on for 29 days, um, he was billed at $2,835 per day. So you do the math on that. $2,835 times 29. uh, So it says it here. Total of $82,215. That's how much for the ventilator. Um, And about a quarter of the bill is just drug costs. There was a a time where he was in dire straits, and so the doctors were like, I don't know, throw everything we got at him. Throw every, whatever, experimental, non-experimental, off-label, on-label, whatever it was, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, you know, whatever. Everything that potentially may work, just throw it at him. We're going to do everything we can to try to save this guy. So about 25% of the cost 
was, um, was drug costs. Now, the exact number, this is the exact number that he got a bill for. You ready? $1,122,501.04. See, what's so amazing about this story is I, I led, and the headline says $1.1 million is what the bill was. The real bill was $1,122,501.04. Our system is so messed up that even the difference that I told you there, the difference of the bills, okay? I said $1.1 million, but the real number is $1,122,501.04. Even just the difference would be way too much as a medical bill. The difference would be $22,501.04. The difference in how I described the bill and what the actual number is, that alone is too much for a damn medical bill. Now, there's actually a little bit of an open question, which gets to another part of our absurd healthcare system, there's an open question as to who's paying for it and how they're paying for it. So he has insurance. He also has Medicare. So, you know, the article basically said, like, well, he may only have to pay a small percentage of it. Okay, but any small percentage is going to be a, a huge as a raw number because it's a percentage of $1.122 million. So they're not sure if he's going to pay a percentage of it or if all of it's covered because he has Medicare plus, I think, the insurance on top of the Medicare. So nobody's more covered than this guy, and it's still a question as to whether or not he'll have to pay something. But the bill was the length of a novel, 181 pages. Now, I submit to you, because I can already hear the responses from conservative people or people who would defend the status quo for our health care system. They'll say, yeah, but the reason he was just in there for a really long time, so of course the bill is going to add up. Guys, if you look at the exact same treatment that somebody got in a country that has universal health care, I guarantee you the bill would be probably less than half of this. So, yeah, it's going to be a lot because they're there for a long time. But it's not going to be $1.122 million. That's not going to be it. Because here in the U.S., our health care system is the least efficient the most expensive, and uh, literally are, you know, we pay like double what other developed countries pay. So there is no way to explain this story away as if it's reasonable, understandable, acceptable. And it's just, now imagine for a second, this guy who might be lucky enough to get it all covered, okay? Imagine it was somebody without health insurance, without Medicare, without Medicaid, without health insurance, or with bare bones health insurance, like the bare minimum, you go bankrupt, period. You can't, you can't pay it. You can't afford it. You go bankrupt. In this country, medical bankruptcies, that's one of the top causes of bankruptcy. Other developed countries do not have medical bankruptcies. That is not a concept that exists in other developed countries, but we have it. Just so everybody understands, we, the Federal Reserve was pumping a trillion dollars a day into the stock market to prop it up. A trillion dollars a day in liquidity. We had the bailout from Congress of corporations, which was over $5 trillion when all said and done. Over $5 trillion. But we still don't have free health care for the country. We still don't have free college. By the way, we had at least 20 million more people lose their health insurance 
since the beginning of this pandemic because people are losing their jobs, and when they lose their jobs, they lose their health insurance because oftentimes your, your health insurance is tied to your job. Do you understand the laughing stock that we are here? Do you understand how broken our system is? And do you understand that even the Democratic response, they're supposed to be the left-wing party, their response was, let's subsidize COBRA. You know what that is? That's a giant giveaway to health insurance companies. COBRA is a system that lets you buy into the, the health insurance that you had when you had your job. So you lose your job, but you could still get that health insurance. But the Democrats want to subsidize COBRA, which is just a giant giveaway to the health insurance industry. There is no real left in the United States of America. This is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Over a million dollar bill because you got sick. No fault of your own. Lives are ruined as a result of this stuff. Anybody who's not in favor of Medicare for all could piss right off. I just have no interest in you. Because you're not even hitting the bare minimum threshold of being a decent, moral, ethical human being. You're not even hitting the bare minimum threshold. You can't even say, hey, let's catch up to the rest of the developed world and have everybody have health care as a right. You can't even say that. That means you're, you're biased and you're corrupted by our disgusting, rotten system. And you are part of the swamp. And I can't stand by. I can't abide that. I just can't. So I have no interest in you if you're not for Medicare for all. This isn't a debatable issue. This issue's been settled for a long time, and I don't know how much more evidence you need, but my guess is the more I keep piling on the evidence, the more they'll cover their eyes and ears because, really, they take money from these health insurance companies, so these politicians are going to do the bidding of the health insurance companies, even if it means ignoring stories like this. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you. Do not go anywhere, y'all. Anywhere.
We back, bitch. All right. Let's jump right into it because who knows how long I have before the construction starts up again. So let's start cruising, baby, because I'd like to have zero construction noise in the background for the rest of the show. All right. Where are we at? There we go. Okay. Spying. The government is spying. Here we go. Believe it or not, CNN did some decent investigative journalism for this next story. A small Cessna citation jet flying straight into Washington's highly restricted airspace would typically be met with fighter jets on its wings. But when one flew over the nation's capital on June 1st and circled the White House 20 times, it was hardly an accident. The plane was only one of several aircraft, both piloted and unpiloted, that CNN has been able to track flying over protests in Washington, Minneapolis, and Las Vegas. Government watchdogs fear the planes were used to track protesters and perhaps capture cell phone data. The government's use of surveillance planes to watch over those protesting the police killing of George Floyd has captured the attention of nearly three dozen Democrats in Congress who want to know whether the planes typically equipped with live video cameras and heat sensors, were used for surveilling Americans engaged in peaceful protests. In a June 9th letter to the heads of the FBI, Drug Enforcement Administration, Customs and Border Protection, and the National Guard, lawmakers demanded an end to the practice immediately and permanently and called the use of aircraft above protests a deep and profound breach of Americans' First and Fourth Amendment rights. Now, before uh, people start giving credit to these Democrats here, just understand a strongly worded letter means Dickie McGee's axe. In fact, the Democrats helped give Donald Trump more spying powers. They keep reauthorizing the Patriot Act, which also, just so everybody understands, proves how they know their own stuff about Russiagate was BS. Because they claim that Trump is a Manchurian candidate, he's a puppet of Vladimir Putin, and then they repeatedly vote to give him increased spying powers. If he's Vladimir Putin's puppet, wouldn't you say no more spying at all? And they give him more money in the military budget than he even asks for. So they give him a bigger military budget and more spying powers, and they say, oh my God, he's a Manchurian candidate doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. You don't believe that. I know you don't believe that. I know you don't believe that. So a strongly worded letter doesn't mean anything. But let's reflect on what the government is doing here. Now, I'll go a step further. There is no question. If you have a small plane flying in the most restricted airspace in the world and there's no fighter jets around it, that means it's accepted and it's allowed to be there. It's only allowed to be there. The only thing that would make sense, if it flew around 20 times in the same area, the only thing that would make sense is it is spying. That's what it's doing. Now, under our Constitution... The government really is not allowed to spy on peaceful protesters. We have a right to peacefully protest. That's in the First Amendment. And we have a protection from unreasonable search and seizure as well. That's the Fourth Amendment. So, crystal clear, you cannot spy on peaceful protesters who are doing the most American thing imaginable, which is having their voices heard. You cannot do it, but they're doing it. And listen, this gets into a a bigger conversation about the CIA, 
about the FBI and about how these organizations have always done things that are objectionable, illegal, unconstitutional, and unacceptable, but as part of the culture in Washington, D.C., and to them it's nothing. It's just, a, just another random Tuesday. And, I mean, listen, our intelligence agencies sent a letter to Martin Luther King saying, we know you've been cheating on your wife, you should probably kill yourself. They tried to catch Malcolm X cheating, but Malcolm X wasn't cheating. You know, they, I mean, the CIA obviously has done assassinations throughout their history, and probably still to this day, any third world governments that are acting up that are not falling in line and being our good little corporate, corporate puppets, they take action. So domestically, they do the same thing. If they think anybody is threatening their power, their control, their authority, if people are challenging the status quo too much, they come after you. Listen, they admitted it. What was it? There was a clip that came out. I think one of them went on Tucker Carlson's show like two years ago. And he said, yeah, one of the things that we're supposed to do part of the, as part of U.S. intelligence agencies is undermine left-wing movements. Undermine left-wing movements. So that's what they're doing. They're getting all the information on these people protesting. They'll add them to some sort of unconstitutional U.S. watch list, government watch list. They'll equate them with like, you know, terrorists like al-Qaeda or what have you, and they'll just say, hey, no, we have to do this because these are all Antifa terrorists. They'll come up with some BS rationalization like that, and it doesn't matter that you're peaceful. You've already been lumped in with the bad guys. So this is the way our system works. Your government's not protecting you. Your government's not, they don't care about you. They view you as an enemy to be spied on, to be stalked. They view you as somebody who threatens their power and their control and the status quo. So they will try to make your, living, your life a living hell if it comes to it, just like they did with Malcolm X, just like they did with Martin Luther King. They have no real sympathy, and they have no real ideology other than rank authoritarianism and preventing progress. They think left-wing movements threaten the status quo, and they're right about that. But, you know, left-wing movements are actually are also correct in the sense that they were correct when it came to Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. They're correct now in fighting for police reform. Um, you know, any movement towards ending war. That's, these are other kinds of protesters that they've spied on and they will continue to spy on. I'm telling you, you're viewed equal to a terrorist if you're an anti-war protester, if you're a Black Lives Matter protester, just so everybody understands, we learned recently that the government has, or I should, was it the FBI? I think it was the FBI. They had a whole sub-agency that was looking into black identity extremists. So this is what's happening. They don't care about the First Amendment. They don't care about the Fourth Amendment. They don't care about protecting freedom, liberty, and justice. Um, they'll take away your freedom in a second, and they'll spy on peaceful protesters, and if need be, if they think they have to, they'll make your life a living hell, simply because you're standing up to have your voice heard and you're trying to fix the system. This is what your government is doing. This is what they're doing. So you should not trust them at all when it comes to waging war. You should not trust them at all when it comes to cracking down on protesters, because Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's the old saying. And they have the power, they have the control, 
And they will do everything they can to hang on to it and to maintain the status quo. And you are their enemy. Even if you're just simply calling to improve the system, you are their enemy. And they couldn't make it more clear. And now they're, I would consider this proven, that they're spying on peaceful protesters. And they will have you on some sort of list. And that Orwellian future that we often talk about, it's already here. All right, next. This next story is very interesting to me. The culture war rages on, and it's clear to me at this point that corporations are taking a side. Perhaps surprising to some people, but uh, you know, not so surprising to me at this moment. NASCAR bans Confederate flags at all races and events. So they say the following, on Monday, the only full-time African-American driver in NASCAR's Cup Series called for the auto racing body to ban Confederate flags from its events. Two days later, they did it. The presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive environment for all fans, our competitors, and our industry, bringing people together around a love for racing and the community that it creates is what makes our fans and sport special. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties. Um, So that was their statement. That was the NASCAR statement. Now, there's one racer, something, Sicarelli, I think. Um, He said, I'm retiring, and I'm doing it because I think that this ban is ridiculous. And then he went on to say, like, well, that flag doesn't mean, you know, doesn't, equal racism in the eyes of many people. And that guy said, I'm not, I don't care about the flag, but there are other people who do. And so I think it's unfair to those people. And so he retired in protest. Obviously he's become, you know, kind of a conservative um, icon in many respects. Maybe conservative is a little too loose of a word and too broad of a word there. Maybe like a far right icon in a way. Um, Now what's fascinating is, conservatives are flipping their position on corporations and speech yet again, okay? So when you think of what happens with Twitter, when it's Twitter, they want to allow conservative opinion, conservative thought, and they care about free speech because they feel like they're being unfairly targeted on that platform, okay? So they're pro-free speech when it comes to corporations on that front. Um, Then the NFL, you know, Colin Kaepernick kneeling, and then the NFL basically taking punitive action against him as they pretend that they're not, you have the conservatives supported the NFL's move. And the argument was like, hey man, they're a private company. They can do whatever they want. They can hire and fire whoever they want. And they think Colin Kaepernick doesn't represent their values, so they got rid of him. Tough cookies. That's called freedom. Freedom of the corporation to make whatever decision they uh, find is appropriate for themselves. Well, now that total flip again here, and they say, well, no, people should be allowed to fly the flag, and I don't care that the corporation is taking this position and saying you can't fly the flag. Forget the corporation 
The people should make the decision. They should have the freedom to decide and have no punishment. Yeah, but then shouldn't Colin Kaepernick have the freedom to decide how to protest and have no punishment too? So there's no, there's no consistency in their opinion. They just kind of, you know, flip-flop on, based on whichever side they're on in the specific case in question. So in other words, political ideology overrides the commitment to any principle on free speech. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, what I can't get over is I would defend the right of somebody if they want to, on their private property, fly the Confederate flag. I mean, they literally have the right to do that in the United States of America. The government can't come in and, like, say, take down your Confederate flag. They have a right on their own property to fly whatever flag they want to fly. Um, So I believe in that principle. I think the government is right to basically say we have no standing. We can't go in there and tell you to take down a flag just because we don't like it. I think that's correct. But the thing I can't get over is I don't know why people are so weaselly about it why don't they admit, like, yeah, I want to fly it, and yeah, it represents what it represents. So, in other words, this specific Confederate flag, just so everybody understands, that's actually not the Confederate flag that was flown when the Confederacy existed. It only existed for five years, by the way. But it, that's not the flag that they used back then. It was a totally different flag. This flag came up and you know, was viewed as the Confederate flag, and it became like the new Confederate flag, specifically during, you know, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And it was, it became an official declaration of we're pro-segregation and we are against the anti-segregation protesters. So it's like, it's the official flag of like, we want to defend the Jim Crow South. We don't want it to change. We don't want desegregation. That's what that flag, it came up specifically in the 1960s for that purpose. Like that was the whole point of it. It became the new Confederate flag, which symbolized an opposition to the civil rights movement. Now, that's the history of it. Do I think there are some people, probably younger people, who have been told that, oh, no, this isn't about racism, this is about, you know, Southern pride or history or whatever. I'm sure there's some young people who have been told that, and I'm sure there are some young people who believe that, that it really is not, oh, no, it's only about, you know, pride and about history, it's not about race or whatever. But let's not kid ourselves as to the origins of it. So in a weird way, I would have a hell of a lot more respect for somebody who says, I want to fly it, And yes, I get that it has racist origins, and I don't care because I kind of agree with that. So yes, I want to fly it, and that's what it means to me. I would have a lot more respect for people who admitted that. But instead, we get this Weasley argument of like, no, 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 it doesn't represent that, even though the origins are literally that. doesn't represent that, and I want to fly it. It's like, if you're going to really, you know, plant the flag (laughs) and say, I want to fly this, at least own up to what it really is and what it really means, okay? So in a weird way, I almost have more respect for the open racist who's so honest and like, yeah, I want to fly it, and I also am kind of racist, and I think that what it represents is correct. 
I liked the, the way the status quo worked back in the you know, 1950s in the South. That's what I like. So, yeah, I want to fly it. And I think, you know, certain people in society should know their place. Like, at least I would be honest. What I don't respect and what I don't like is that Weasley ass trying to have it both ways. Like, no, 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 I want to fly it, but it doesn't really mean the thing that it means. Come on, dog. Come on. So, the, the black racer is named Bubba Wallace, and now he's got like a Black Lives Matter um, car that he'll be you know, racing, and so NASCAR took his side, and just, it was just the one NASCAR driver who said, this is BS, and I'm, you know, retiring. I'm unaware of what other NASCAR drivers have said on this, and, but I would guess that the audience is not happy with this, that they don't like this, and so I'm very curious to see how this plays out, um, I don't, should that NASCAR driver, the Bubba Wallace, the black NASCAR driver, like sort of fear for his safety a little bit? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there because there are a lot of people who are very pissed off about this. But, you know, what I would say, and, and I'll close on this point, it's really reiterating the first point, which is you should really kind of take a position on not just the issue of free speech when it comes to the government, because that's what the First Amendment is about. The government can't suppress speech. But you should also take a position when it comes to freedom of speech and corporations. And then whatever position you take, be consistent with it, regardless of the specifics of the story in question. Okay? So, and, and again, you never see people really be principled on this front. They'll flip it based on which side of the story they agree with politically in the given instance. So with the Kaepernick example... Yeah, the NFL is a private company. They can make whatever decision they want. That's what they said. Now, in the NASCAR example, if they're not saying, yeah, NASCAR is a private company. They could make whatever decision they want. They flip and they go, no, no, no. They should be allowed to do it regardless of what NASCAR says. So you got to pick one, man. You have to pick a standard and stick by it regardless of the details of the case. Because if you don't have a standard, then you're literally just a partisan hack. That's what you are. So take your position on free speech, not just when it comes to the government, but also when it comes to corporations and their approach to speech. Take a position and defend it, okay? And don't try to always square peg, round hole all these stories. Be consistent. And again, you pretty much never hear consistency anymore on this issue, and that's very upsetting. All right, next. Conservatives are getting in on the virtue signaling business. Look at this here. This is from Matt Gates. Breaking. Gates introducing bill requiring U.S. soccer to stand for anthem or face financial repercussions. If players are playing for our national team, they should stand for the anthem. They should respect our flag. So as uh, Zed Jelani pointed out on Twitter, you know, usually left-wingers are, have a monopoly on the virtue signaling business, but now Matt Gates is getting in on that. And I would actually disagree with Zed Jelani. There's plenty of right-wing virtue signalers out there. Um, and this is just such a clear example of it here. It's the whole, like, flag worship thing. And it all, all this started with Colin Kaepernick. When Colin Kaepernick kneeled and he said, 
hey, listen, this really has nothing to do with the flag or the national anthem. The reason I'm doing this is because I think we should act on police brutality and stop police brutality. And he was, you know, lost his career and had his reputation tarnished and half the country absolutely despises him as a result of what he did. And nobody's been proven more correct in the past, you know, couple weeks than Colin Kaepernick because that was peaceful protest to stop police brutality. And then now there were riots and looting after the killing of George Floyd. And every conservative that I've seen in mainstream media, they immediately argued, well, the looting and the rioting is wrong. If only these looters and rioters peacefully protested, then I'd support them. Except Colin Kaepernick did exactly that on this exact issue, and you didn't support him. You called him unpatriotic. So now Matt Gates is running that logic into the end zone here, and he's introducing a bill that requires people to stand for the national anthem or face financial repercussions. By the way, completely, utterly, obviously unconstitutional. We've had many Supreme Court cases about something that goes beyond just kneeling for the anthem, about flag burning. There were many Supreme Court cases on flag burning. And because a bunch of, like, it's an issue that allows politicians to virtue signal. Me? I love America. I love this country. So the symbol of America is the flag. If you desecrate the flag, then you're evil and you should go to prison. That's what you should do. And Justice Antonin Scalia, who's a far-right justice, he said... Um, I don't know why we're even debating this. This is the most open and closed case imaginable. The whole point of the First Amendment is that it protects speech, which makes people uncomfortable. That's the whole point of the First Amendment. So, of course, the government cannot arrest somebody, find somebody for desecrating a flag. That's the definition of freedom. The whole point of freedom, it's not like you don't need freedom to do the things that everybody agrees with. You need freedom to do the things that piss people off, specifically, which, by the way, you're not hurting anybody else. You're not taking away anybody's rights if you burn a flag. So you're not hurting anybody else, but you're taking this action. It pisses people off, but that doesn't matter. That's the whole point of freedom. It's like the real tests of the standards and the principles are on the fringe cases. That's when you're really testing your commitment to a principle. And so Antonin Scalia was like, what, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course you, you can't pass a law finding somebody or arresting somebody for burning a flag. The whole point of patriotism, guys, is patriotism isn't not burning a flag. Patriotism is understanding and acknowledging how awesome it is that you live in a country that allows you to burn the flag and doesn't crack your skull over it, or lock you in a cage because of it. That's patriotism. Patriotism is understanding, oh, I mean, I guess this is kind of a special place if you can burn a flag that represents the place and you're still able to walk around and do your thing. That's why I always, I tell you guys all the time, the very first thing I bring up when I'm asked why I love this country is the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom to protest. That's the best thing about this country by far. And then I also argue the history, there's a, a rich history of left-wing movements in the U.S., union movements, of, um, you know, the civil rights movement, people standing up for justice to create a more perfect union. We also have the opposite. Slavery is also as American as apple pie. Native American genocide, same thing. Nuking innocent civilians in Japan. 
There's good and there's bad, for sure. But that's all American. But the best part is that we have freedom of speech and that you can burn a flag and it's perfectly legal. That's wonderful. Because guess what? When you have a system that protects free speech, you're, there's a built-in correction mechanism where people can fix stuff moving forward because they have the freedom and the flexibility to critique. So then we could listen to those critiques and react accordingly. For him to try to financially punish people who don't stand for the national anthem, this is the exact kind of BS, faux patriotism, flag worship nonsense. Just do yourself a favor. Take out the U.S. in, in this instance and just put in a country, any other country, and you'll see how primitive this mindset is. If a foreign country banned somebody from or financially punished them for or locked them up for kneeling for their anthem, we'd be like, oh, wow, that's some really authoritarian, childish BS, isn't it? Petty leaders who are unserious, who just care about symbolism. But in this country, we do it, and, you know, a bunch of people on the right are going to cheerlead this, man, even though it's deeply unconstitutional. You're allowed to burn a flag in this country. Of course you can't have the government financially punish people because they want to kneel for the national anthem. I hear the workers are back, so it's going to be annoying for the last three stories. I'm going to try to speed up here. So Twitter is testing another very stupid new feature. Sharing an article can spark conversation, so you may want to read it before you tweet it. To help promote informed discussion, we're testing a new prompt on Android. When you retweet an article that you haven't opened on Twitter, we may ask you if you'd like to open it first. So in other words, Twitter wants to micromanage themselves into oblivion. You cannot retweet something just for the headline. They might make it so that they force you to click and open the link before you can retweet something. I mean, there's so many responses to this, but probably the clearest one is, well, what happened if I was reading the article on a different device and it had nothing to do with Twitter? Like, I found the article just by going to the website, reading the article, and then on, like, my phone, I try to retweet it. And, like, I read it on a different device, but since I didn't open it on Twitter, Twitter's going to say, hey, you, you got to read this. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of heavy-handed stupidity that will destroy a platform. Listen, man. It's not like all social media companies are somehow magically above and beyond becoming the next MySpace. You know, MySpace was running the, the world of social media for a while, and it just totally imploded and collapsed, and it was replaced, and, you know, Facebook obviously took off and all this stuff. But, like, I know what they think they're doing. I know they think, like, oh, my God, these conversations on Twitter are so toxic, and they're so bad, and they hurt people's mental health, and we have to try to fix that. I know what they think they're doing. But... Their response to it, is, I would argue, is probably worse than the original problem. Because there used to be this argument, there used to be this thing of, no, 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 listen, I don't care what you think of what we're doing here at Twitter. We are simply a medium for people to express their feelings, express their thoughts, and we're not taking a position. We don't agree or disagree with anything anybody says on this platform. We're just a bathroom wall. We're just a message board. We have no stake in it. We're not... We're not going to censor, we're not going to filter, we're not going to edit, we're not going to deplatform. We just are the middleman. And you can piss off if you don't like that. That used to be the argument. But now, 
with enough politicians and enough media figures, mainstream elitist media figures saying, oh my God, it's so toxic on this website. Oh, it's so toxic. Yeah. With enough people saying that, they get scared. They're like, oh my God, we have to do something because people are being mad to us on MSNBC. And then they end up taking this drastic kind of action. And like I said, they will micromanage themselves into oblivion if they don't go back to the original message. I don't care that you have a bunch of 20-somethings or 30-somethings working for you that think, like, this is going to promote much more healthy discourse on the platform. They don't know what the hell they're talking about, and they don't know what the hell they're doing. And there should be no goal of Twitter outside of being that medium for people to express their thoughts. Now when you get into this game, you are kind of trying to influence public opinion and, and, and shift them in certain directions, and that's unacceptable. Even if I agree with the direction you're trying to shift people, that's not your job. It's like what they've been doing with Trump's tweets recently where, you know, they'll, you have to click through to see it because they say this violates our terms of service. But then you click through and you can see it. What's the point of that, man? Every, every news outlet, even that news outlets that have people bitching about this, even they're going to have articles on stuff Trump says. He's the president. What he says is by definition newsworthy. To do this weird middle ground semi-censorship to click through to see it, you're just making yourself feel like you're doing something that makes you important. Like, oh... What if I take a stand and I say, this is a bad man who said a bad thing, and I let everybody know I think it's a bad man who said a bad thing? I don't care what you think. You're supposed to be the middleman. You're not supposed to be like, you know, like a nagging mom, <laughs> this weird nagging mom middle ground where, like, you're trying to filter the world for me. I don't care about your sensibilities. I don't want them involved in this at all. Sometimes I retweet articles just for the headline. Like an Onion article is a perfect example of that. They just have funny headlines. You retweet that, and, you know, it's good. Sometimes the whole story is right in the freaking headline. Now, I get it. They're saying sometimes it's, you know, misleading headlines. Of course there are. That's the problem of the outlet. That's not your problem, Twitter. So I really wish that they would take a more Facebook-like approach, where Mark Zuckerberg has come out recently, and he's been saying, like, no, this isn't our job. We're not going to get involved. We believe in free speech. Yes, that's the stance that all these social media companies should take. Now, I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg is necessarily doing it for principled reasons. I think now there are a hell of a lot more conservatives on Facebook, so he's like, you know, it's protecting his business model in a way. So I'm not, you know, saying he's on some pedestal or whatever. But what I am saying is, if Twitter keeps going down this path, oh my God, they are going to micromanage themselves into oblivion. And all these media companies, man, they're just, they're driving me crazy now. And of course, uh, YouTube is on the top of the list, my home here on YouTube, because... The algor- they've tweaked the algorithm to basically destroy independent uh, media, like myself. Any new media outlet that's not authoritative gets deprioritized in the algorithm, and so we're left behind. If you watch this show on a regular basis, you'll probably get recommended videos from this show. But if you don't watch it on a regular basis, they don't, they don't recommend to many new people. So if you're watching news and politics, you'll almost always be redirected back to CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or Fox Business or ABC or NBC. Um, You know, The Hill is lucky in the sense that they, you know, rising with Crystal and Sager, they are part of a corporation. There's a parent corporation, The Hill. So they're lucky in that they kind of are an outsider voice that skirted through and beat the algorithm in a way. So they get to grow really fast, whereas people like me and, you know, Jimmy Dore and Sam Cedar and David Pakman um, and, and the Humanist Report and David Dole and you know, Tim Black 
and Nico House and all these like more outsider voices, we're just it's harder for us to grow because we're not recommended to new people because YouTube made a point of not recommending us to new people anymore. There was a time when I used to crush every CNN video in terms of views, but it turns out when you pump CNN into everybody's feed, if they watch news on YouTube, it turns out they surpass us pretty quickly because you're giving them a massive, massive, massive uh, advantage. In a fair fight, I think I beat them 10 out of 10 times. But if you don't recommend me to new people and you recommend them to new people, of course they're going to beat me. Of course, every major authoritative source is going to beat me. And YouTube has come out and admitted this. They've said, yeah, we're going to only prioritize authoritative sources. So, you know, you might, if you watch a bunch of secular talk videos and have on autoplay, eventually it'll, it'll go to an outlet that you don't like and I don't like. But that's what YouTube says. We're making a point of doing that. So it's tough. What I would say is you guys... Like the video, subscribe to the video, click the bell so you, you know, you get a notification every time we drop a new video. Um, but also, like, you know, i got to find a way around that. So share with family and friends and just try to get the word out because, again, it's very difficult. And I feel like all of these social media companies, Twitter, YouTube, they're just, they're micromanaging themselves into oblivion because they're so sensitive to any criticism from idiot elitists. And what I want to tell them is, hey, guys, they're out-of-touch idiot elitists. They don't know anything. They don't know how to run a social media company. They're not necessarily even that smart. So why are you listening to them? Why do you care that they criticize you? You know, there is such a thing as hearing criticism and then saying, yeah, disagree, piss off. You could do that. You could say that. So, but they don't. But they don't. And they kowtow to the mob of elite losers every single time. And I can't wait until we see the next Twitter feature. Now, they're just testing this one now. But let's see. They might implement it everywhere. And then, you know, what are they going to do next? How are they going to micromanage next? How far is this going to go? Well, we're going to find out. And, but if they don't course correct very soon, they're in a hell of a lot of trouble, man. You know, they could really, there are repercussions to acting like this. At some point, people are just not going to want to be on your platform. All right, let me do two more. Hopefully the banging isn't too loud in the background. That's hilarious that I just said those words. Actually, no, I'm not doing two more. I'm doing one more. Glenn Beck has gone back to his 2009 ways of incredibly stupid chalkboard conspiracy theories. Um, So here he is talking about who's behind the rioting and looting. That's why they oppose the president invoking the Insurrection Act. That's why they all collectively freaked out over Senator Cotton's op-ed. Have you noticed how many district attorneys have all begun to drop the charges and refuse to prosecute rioters? We've seen it now in Washington, D.C. We've seen it in in San Francisco, in New York City. It's happening everywhere. Really? Why? Why is that happening? When was the last time you paid attention to who was running your local district attorney? I'd be willing to bet most of us have never thought, gee, I wonder what's happening in the exciting DA race this year. 
I hate to do this again, but you really literally can't research or look into any of these things without running into, yes, spooky dude himself. Look, I've tried. i really tried, but he's always connected to these things. He's a dark lord. He just is. Imagine looking at the current political moment and thinking George Soros is behind it. I mean, seriously, look at everything that's unfolded recently, whether it's the giant COVID bailout that went to corporations overwhelmingly and the wealthy overwhelmingly. Did George Soros make our government only represent corporations and bail them out while people got screwed? Did George Soros do that? I would guess not. Did George Soros kill George Floyd? With the knee on the neck, no. Did George Soros spark these giant protests that happened as a direct result of that? No. It has absolutely nothing to do with George Soros, but he's invoking George Soros. Why? Because if you say, if you blame George Soros, that means you're claiming everything happening in the country right now, this giant left movement, it's just, it's astroturf. That's all it is. All of it is astroturf. All of it is like paid protesters. There's, nobody actually really believes that police brutality is bad and that you know, they want to stop that by any means necessary. And so that's why they're out there. They're not out there because they're part of the Black Lives Matter movement. They're not out there because of widespread misery, poverty, and degradation as a result of the looting of the treasury by corporations and the rich and Congress being totally corrupt in a complete swamp. No, no, no. They're not out there because of that. They're out there because George Soros paid them to be out there. So George Soros is his convenient scapegoat for the moment where he doesn't have to address the actual issues. Now, he says at the beginning there that, like, you know, he's for the Insurrection Act, and he's like, these people are against Trump using the Insurrection Act. This is coming from Glenn Beck, who literally used to do segments railing against government tyranny and government authoritarianism. And he would talk about, yeah, the government's going to come take away your rights and your freedom. And now he's like, oh, I want the government to go take away people's rights and freedom, of course, because I don't agree with these protesters. Look how quick he flips on the principles he said he had in an instant, simply because he doesn't agree ideologically with the protesters. And apparently he thinks they're all paid by George Soros or whatever. So, listen, look how quickly they flip from, you know, Freedom, First Amendment, free speech to law and order, send in the military, stop these movements. It's just so pathetic and so sad. And, and the final thing here is he was talking about, well, would you look at that? All of a sudden the charges were dropped on all these rioters. Curious. And he's trying to say that Soros was involved and, I don't know, he's paying the protesters, helping the protesters, or Soros got the DAs elected who are dropping the charges, and so that's what's really going on. It's, it's like highly organized and orchestrated chaos that they're going to get away with because the puppet master is making all the decisions. Let me tell you what actually happened. You had mass arrests of people who there was no evidence that they were actually rioters, and then now you have the authorities looking through it and going, We can't prosecute this in a court of law. There's zero evidence that these people are rioters. Of course you have to let them go. That's what's happening, Glenn. That's what's happening. They were doing mass arrests of people who weren't the problem. Some of them that they arrested, I'm sure, were the problem. But there were so many peaceful protesters out there, and they arrested peaceful protesters and pretended like they were rioters. How do you not see? 
there were so many stories we saw just within the past two or three weeks of media people being arrested when it was crystal clear they were media people holding a microphone, person with a camera, a CNN guy got arrested on camera, you know, when it was beyond obvious that he was with the media and he didn't do any rioting, he didn't do any looting, he didn't even do any protesting. He was just covering what was happening. And they arrested him anyway. They're doing that on camera in the most brazen, over-the-top, clear way. I mean, that's authoritarian. There were no laws broken. You saw that. Imagine what they're doing when the camera's not on. They're doing mass arrests of peaceful protesters, which, by the way, is part of the problem. This is part of police brutality. They're abusing their authority. So the whole point of the protest was, oh, my God, we've got to stop this police brutality. And the police responded to that with more police brutality. So how do you not understand that that's what happened? It's not that, oh, there's a big conspiracy and we know that all these people are rioters, but, you know, George Soros somehow got them off from accountability. No. People were mass arrested and they weren't rioters and that was obvious so they had no choice but to let them go. That's what happened. Man, so many conservatives just totally lost the plot. Totally lost it. They're all just what they were. Listen, for all the people who rehabilitated goons like Glenn Beck because early on he was saying he was anti-Trump, congratulations. Because now you're getting what you deserve. The guy was always a piece of trash. The guy always had no principles and no core. The guy's just a right-wing hack. And now you're seeing it yet again. Now he's one of the biggest Trump sycophants there is. He originally was against them. Now he's one of the biggest Trump sycophants there is. And he says stuff like this. Okay, he's going to defend it. It doesn't matter what you have the cops doing on video. He will defend it come hell or high water. And I think that's totally obvious. So from now on, do me a favor. Don't rehabilitate any of these Bush-era conservatives. Because guess what? They're just as bad as Trump. Okay. And I believe on that note, we're going to end a little bit early today. I tried to breeze through everything because of the construction noise, and I think we succeeded. Let me just make sure I didn't miss any of these amazing stories. Um, I think we're good. Looking, looking, looking. Yeah, I think we're good. All right, guys. I love you. I think by the next show there will be no construction, so we'll be good to go. But anyway, I love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.